1 Samuel 14, I'll start at the first verse. Please give your attention to the Word of God. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Senech. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, Then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up here and we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me. For the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed after him. And at that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, they killed about 20 men within as it were half a furrow length of an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked and it became a very great panic. This is the word of the Lord. The past few weeks have been talking about this subject of God's sovereignty. And that's a theological term, God's sovereignty. And and, uh, uh, what does it mean? Uh, We'll talk about that in a moment again. But I told you that if God, if God really exists, if there's a God, and we believe that there is a God, if He exists and He is sovereign, which by definition a God, a God would have to be sovereign, if He's sovereign, then that means He's not going to be easy for us to live with. Because we're human beings and we have finite understanding and finite sight. And there are a lot of things that go on in this world around us, both seen and unseen, that we don't understand. And so if God is sovereign, if He's in control of everything, and we're able to look with our eyes and look around us and see, wow, the world's really in a mess. I mean, if He was sovereign, wouldn't He fix this? And wouldn't He do that? Wouldn't He do this other thing over here? 
it can create a lot of tension. And I don't know anybody, I don't know anybody from any religion, Christianity, of course, uh, is our religion, but I don't know anybody from any religion that doesn't live in some tension with God because He's sovereign, because He knows all and controls everything. And so how do you live with a sovereign God? That's what we've been talking about these four weeks. And we've looked at these various passages. Uh, uh, Three weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah goes into the temple, and he sees this vision, this magnificent vision of God, high and lifted up, a vision of the sovereign God on his throne. And what you get in Isaiah 6 is a picture of an ancient Near East potentate, a king whose word is absolute law. Whatever he says goes. And Isaiah is struck with the, with the beauty and the magnificence of this great God. And he falls down and he says, I'm ruined, I'm, I'm done for, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, my sin, in other words, his sinfulness, and Isaiah was probably better than all of us put together, but his sinfulness, Isaiah was aware of, has separated him from God. But there's something else in Isaiah chapter 6 that is so wonderful. You see, sovereignty in the hands of anybody that we know would be uh, monstrous. It would be horrific because a sovereign can do whatever he pleases to whoever he pleases. And so we should be terrified of a sovereign who does not have the character and qualities that we see that Isaiah saw. The quality of holiness. The beauty of God's holiness, His love, His purity, His majesty, His justice, His righteousness, His goodness to all mankind, His benevolence towards humanity and towards all His creation. And so God's sovereignty, listen folks, God's sovereignty is tempered and controlled by His character, who He is. And for that reason, you and I can live in confidence that even though the world it looks messed up sometimes, and indeed there are many parts that are, there's also great beauty and great wonder in the world around us. And God has promised throughout His Holy Scriptures that He means to reconcile His world with this world. And that's why when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're looking for that great day when our great king, our great sovereign comes and re, rebirths this earth and this world and all people can live in peace with one another. And we have that promise. So we looked at God's sovereignty and the next week we looked at Nehemiah 1 and 2 and Nehemiah had to make choices. You know, how do you make choices? When you have a sovereign God, why bother? I mean, if he's making up everything as he goes along, then why should we even bother making choices? But I told you that the two great errors that religious people tend to make is we either fall into fatalism, like in Islam, inshallah, whatever God wills, that's fine. Whatever he wills, it's complete fatalism. Or even in some parts of Christianity, we like to say, oh, God will, God will, God will. It's a form of extreme fatalism where we, it's almost like, well, you, there's nothing you can do. He's a great puppet master. He's just pulling the strings. So, you know, we'll just do the best we can. 
But on the other hand, the other great error is that people tend to think that God is just a great big clockmaker. He just wound up a clock and put the universe into, into effect and then he steps back and he watches and sees what happens. And that creates another problem for us. Then we have autonomous free will and that way everything you do matters and every little step and you're in control of everything. And I told you, if you believe either one of those, you probably wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. It's terrifying. But the Bible, the Scriptures don't tell us that. The Scriptures say that both are true. That people have free will, and yet at the same time, we live under the direction and control of a sovereign God. You say, oh, I don't get that, Chuck. Well, listen, I've been to, I've been to graduate school. I'm very, I'm very smart. I mean, I have, I have a degree in theology. Aren't you impressed? I don't understand it either. So join the club. And I've read all the great people and all the great minds, you know. And uh, I can tell you, they don't understand it either. It's a mystery. We don't know. But we do know it's true. And so we just have to live with confidence that we can make our choices, that we can live our life freely, and that God is going to order and direct things as He sees fit, and that He's watching over you and caring for you in great love. And then we looked at Second Chronicles, Jehoshaphat having to face the impossible. And let me tell you, folks, when you're facing the impossible whether it's these great armies that Jehoshaphat was facing and he couldn't possibly conquer them and God comes in his sovereignty and he destroys that army without Jehoshaphat having to lift a finger. And when you're facing some trouble in your life that's impossible, a child who's gone off the rails and isn't listening anymore, maybe your marriage is failing or your business isn't doing well or you've got some dread disease or the doctor says you only have this long to live, whatever the case may be, You want a sovereign God. You want a God that has power so that when you cry out in your pain and your heartache, help me, O Lord. How long, O Lord? Like the psalmist said in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long before you step down and raise your right hand of power? You want a sovereign God when we have impossibilities to face and we saw that God is indeed sovereign. And so today we're going to look at this wonderful passage from 1 Samuel of Jonathan, the son of King Saul, he was heir to the throne, by the way, doing something that is so gallant and so noble and so courageous that people throughout history have said this is one of the most amazing things in any narrative of any story. This one young warrior going up against an entire garrison merely by faith. What an What a wonder this man Jonathan is a real hero, somebody that we can look at. So living with a sovereign God, we're going to look at this today, means that we are demonstrating His faithfulness by our taking risks in our life. We're all going to have to take risks that we're going to be able to show our faith by our obedience. And so let's look at three things this morning. First, we're going to talk about risk and recklessness. Risk or recklessness. Second, we'll look at Radical faith or presumption. I'm going to do it quickly, so don't get nervous. We won't stay too long. Radical faith or presumption. And finally, we're going to look at radical obedience. Radical obedience. So very quickly, let's talk about risk or recklessness. Now, there's a contrast here. If you look at the first few verses of 1 Samuel, he talks about, about Jonathan being alone and Jonathan's father, Saul, the king, having the army, at least part of the army, with him, 600 men. Plus, he had uh, Ahitub, uh, 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 the, the high priest with him, 
uh, and the ephod, the 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 uh, dressings of the of the of the priest with the uh, breastplate, where they could inquire of God, the oracles of God, get God's immediate input, and they had the ark of the covenant. So they had all of the the power, if you will, of Almighty God with Saul in the camp, the army, the ark, the ephod, the priest, and 600 men. And over contrasted is Jonathan, alone, only his armor bearer, and Jonathan by himself. And so it's a great risk for Jonathan to step into that that valley in between these two crags. Imagine these two craggy mountains and the Philistines are on one side and and Israel is on the other side and Jonathan is there with his armor bearer and he says, you know, let's go over there and let's go fight with them. Who knows? God might actually deliver us and may give us a great victory. One commentator said this, the enterprise, this enterprise is one of the most gallant that history or romance ever records. Isn't that wonderful? This brave young man who says, I'm going to fight for my God and my people against all odds. Well, was it risky? Well, of course it was risky. Was it reckless? No. Risky? Yes. Reckless? No. It would have been reckless if Jonathan had, had gone across presumptuously, which we'll talk about in a moment. If Jonathan had gone over against the Philistines with no basis, no foundation, no reason, no call to go. But those of you that know your Scriptures know that the Bible is replete with promises by God to His people who were always in a minority, always being oppressed and crushed by some great power. And he constantly reminded them, do not fear. Do not fear. Listen, I'm just going to give you a few. And this is from many of the genres in the Bible, from the law, from Leviticus. You will pursue your enemies. They will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred. A hundred of you will chase a thousand and your enemies will fall before, the, before you by the sword. That's in the law, in Leviticus. And then in Deuteronomy, one of the histories of the, old, of the Older Testament, when you go to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and greater army than yourself, do not be afraid because the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt will be with you. See, He makes all the difference. Doesn't need, we don't need big armies. We just need Him and He will make our army big. And then from Proverbs. I'm picking from different genres in the Old Testament. Proverbs. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests in the Lord. And then of course from Psalms, a very famous psalm, some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in what? What? The name of the Lord our God. We don't need all those horses. Yeah, they're nice to have. Maybe sometimes we need them. But ultimately, we could have the biggest army and still fail. So was it, was it risky? The answer is yes. Was it reckless? No. The answer is no. It was not reckless. Jonathan was acting on faith. And he was taking God's word seriously. Something we all want to do, Right? I mean, if I promised you something, if I said, you know, I promise that I'll take you to lunch after church, and I'll pay. 
which you never see pastors do, right? We're notorious for making sure we wait until somebody else picks up the bill, right? Now, if I promised you that and then I didn't do it, you'd say, well, Chuck's not good for his word, right? But if you promise something and, and you know that person is good for their word, then you can trust them. And that's all it is. So it's just simple trust in God's word. And Jonathan exhibited that. He, he said, you know, I've, I've heard these stories all my life since I was a little kid. I heard how Moses conquered uh, the Egyptians and then the sea came and, and boiled them under the sea and, and we were victorious, just a little band of people. I, I believe those stories. So I'm going over there and I'm going to fight for my God. Isn't that what Nehemiah said? Isn't that what Isaiah said? Isn't that what Jehoshaphat said? Isn't that what we must say if we want to faithfully follow our God? Especially today, folks. People, you know, things are crazy in this. Are you watching the news? Okay, you better be reading your Bible at the same time. <laughs> it's getting a little sketchy out there. Lots of scary stuff in the world. Gary, pray this virus, I mean, is scary. Everything's scary. And we don't want to be presumptuous. We don't want to be reckless. But we live in a world that's risky. And so, let's look at radical faith or presumption. This is verses 6 through 10. He tells, he tells his servant in two places, come on, let's go over. And then he says this, it may be that the Lord will work for us. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing, listen to this, I love this. I, I want to be him. Don't you want to be him? I want to be him. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Do you see the beautiful uh, interaction of faith and humility and dependence and simple childlike trust that was exhibited in Jonathan. Jonathan, by the way, is one of the few characters in the Bible who is an, what we call an idealized character. There, there's no flaws in Jonathan. He's like Joshua, the, the servant of Moses, who took over after Moses. Joshua is another one of those characters you don't see any flaws. And the authors had intention in that. They wanted you to see uh, these, these leaders in a certain light. And we can't go into all that. But Jonathan is one of those idealized characters. David's not an idealized character as much as we love David. I mean, he did all kinds of crazy stuff. And, there, and Moses. Moses made many mistakes. Abraham, our dear father in the faith, made many mistakes. But we don't see that with Jonathan. We see a man who's walking in strict integrity. Very interesting, very interesting. Be happy to talk to you about it some other time. A beautiful interaction of faith, humility, and boldness. I mean, this guy's got courage. One commentator, another great commentator said this, this expression, listen carefully folks, put your thinking caps on, this expression did not imply a doubt. When he says he may, uh, save us but because he can do it by many or by few. He's not expressing doubt. Listen, it signified simply that the object he aimed at was not in his own power. The object he aimed at conquering the Philistines was not in his own power. It wasn't because there was any doubt there whether well, he may or he may not. No, he was submitting his life to the sovereign God and, it, and the commentator goes on and says, but it depended upon God and that he expected success neither from his own strength 
nor merit. We talk about this all the time. Every human being wants to stand before God on his own merit. We want to stand before God and we want to say, look at me, look at what I've done. We want to roll out our resume and tell them all the great things we've done and show them all the important things we've done. And somehow, every human being, I don't care what religion you ascribe to, every human being wants to treat with God, wants to to do business with God on our terms. We want to come to Him and say, look, you have to accept me because I've done this, that, and the other. And I've been a good person. And I've tried to live a good life. And I've done this and that and that. But what happens if your life goes sideways and you're not a good person? Like me. I know I look great in my robe. That's why I like to wear it once in a while. But I mean, come on, folks. Get real. Look inside your heart. There's a lot of darkness in our heart. And often we don't do things that we would like to. You know, murder and killing. I mean, we just, we just anger. We would, I'd like to kill that person, but we don't really do it. Well, Jesus told us, if you're angry with your brother in your heart, you've murdered him already. How dare you? How dare you think, well, I didn't, I didn't actually kill them, but I've murdered them in my heart. I hate their guts. And Jesus says, how dare you? Or you covet your neighbor's goods. You say, well, on that car, I, how come I can't have a car? How come they don't deserve that car? I deserve Look how hard I work. I deserve this. You don't have to go steal their car. Jesus said you're already guilty of coveting their car. Just as well go steal it. Because you're guilty. What do we do with that, folks? I don't know what people do with it. And I don't... I've been, I've been very honest with you folks all the years I've been here. I don't have enough cachet to go to God and to tell Him, you must accept me because I'm this and that and the other thing. I know myself. <laughs> Good Lord, I know who I am. And I hope that you're honest enough to know who you are. We need somebody that we can place our faith in who is radically worthy of that faith. And that's the difference with Jonathan. Jonathan does not treat with God on his own merits. He said, you know, it may be. Let's just trust Him and see what happens. Let's trust Him and see what happens. Because God is able. He can deliver by many or by few. Presumption is this. There's faith and there's presumption. I've talked to you about this many times. Let me just get, give it to you quick. Presumption is, is a kind of faith. Presumption is to take something for granted, to assume, listen, to pres- and presumption has an object to it. But what presumption's object is, is an assessment, our assessment, our human assessment of the situation. And we weigh all sorts of things in that assessment, and then we act based on that assessment. And sometimes, some of what we're thinking about is our own merit, our own ability, our gifts. You know, Mel, I think I could take them. You know, if we, the element of surprise, you know, we'll creep up there and we'll jump out on them and they won't even see us coming. You don't hear Jonathan saying any of that. In fact, he says the opposite. We're going to walk out there and we're going to show ourselves to them. We're not going to even sneak up and ambush them. He, he's not being presumptuous. He's acting in faith. Faith has an object as well. And Jonathan's faith was not in himself. See, that would be presumptuous, yes? Presumption would be faith in your faith. Faith in yourself. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians live their whole lives like that. I want more faith. I need more faith. I don't have enough faith. More faith, more faith, more faith. 
And I have told you repeatedly, folks, we don't need more faith. We need to put the faith we have in an object strong enough so that if you drop one drop of your, your faith, my faith is pretty, it's sketchy. Sometimes it's really good, sometimes not so good. But if I put my faith in God Himself, then my little bit of paltry faith takes on all the power and strength of God Himself. And that's what Jonathan is doing. Not presumption. It may be that the world, that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder him. The, the great theologian and pastor A.W. Tozer said this. Listen to this beautiful quote, and then I'm going to finish. Faith is not in itself, listen. Faith is not in itself a meritorious act. The merit is in the one toward whom it is directed. Don't you love that? Faith is not a meritorious act. The only merit that faith has is the object in which it is placed. And I'll tell you folks, you take your Bible, you look from the beginning to the end, and that's all you ever see. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord imputed it to him as righteousness. Do you see the key word is the Lord Abraham could, have impu- Abraham could have believed in that tree over there. And the tree could have done nothing but maybe give him some fruit, an apple or something. But when, when Abraham put his faith in the Lord, all of a sudden, it took on a grandeur and a glory that was righteousness to Abraham. And that's what each one of us has to do as people of faith. So what about radical obedience? Look at these last few verses. He showed themselves. He took action. Radical faith, folks, listen, is nothing unless it is followed, as Gary prayed this morning, by radical obedience. You see, we can go around all day long saying, I believe, I believe, I believe. Well, what exactly do you believe? And how does that belief, how does that faith cause you to treat other people especially people who do not believe like us. Sadly, Christianity has a terrible track record. We end up crucifying and killing people in our history sometimes because they don't believe like us. But so do other religions. No excuse. Of all the religions in the world, Christianity should and must be the most tolerant. Tolerant of sin? Say no but tolerant of the image of God in our fellows, our brothers and sisters around the world, say yes. And so what we believe will cause us to treat people who don't agree with us differently. And I'll tell you folks, if we would ever learn to actually do that, the world could be transformed. Yes, it could be changed. We could be agents of change in this world. We've got to put away anger and hatred and actually, actually obey God, the one we claim we believe. Can it, let's get Pentecostal for a minute. Can somebody say amen? Yeah, come on. Let's, let's actually do what we say we believe. And what a world we would have. As Christians, we're called to radical faith and radical obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Doesn't get any plainer than that. 
If you love me, keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is one who loves me, he said. These are all from one little passage. He just, he just hammers away at it several times. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Folks, we are called to live in radical faith and obedience because God is worthy to be obeyed, to be loved. Why? Why? Why would we do that? And I'll tell you why. Just speaking in human terms, just humanly speaking, God took the greatest risk that a cosmic risk, a risk that we could never imagine. He looked down on this world and he saw people struggling against an enemy, the Philistines, against an enemy they could not conquer. And he saw hearts that were broken and rent and torn apart by sin and the great gulf between God and us is that sin. And everybody knows that every religion in the world has some means of atonement. Some means of atonement. Every human being knows there's something between us and God that has to be reconciled, that has to be put back together again. And for us, for those of us that in the Christian faith, we come with empty hands to God and we say, nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to your cross, we cling. We see that the great hero that Jonathan simply prefigured was that great Savior, Jesus Christ, who stepped into the valley between us and the enemies of God, sin, death, and hell itself. Jesus stepped into that valley and he said, I will go. I will fight, and I will do it alone. Not even an armor bearer went with our Savior. God sent His Son into the world to finish, listen, to finish what Jonathan began. There's an enemy, separation from God, sin, death, and hell, and an atonement must be made. Some price has got to be paid, and we don't have the currency. And so God in His great love and in His great benevolence comes and says, I will pay. It's the only religion in the world, folks. There's not another religion where the God says to the people, me for you. Every other religion says you for me. And for that, your life, your heart, your entire being can be transformed into one of gratitude where you look at the world through completely new and different lenses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the writer to the Hebrews said, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let us run with endurance for He who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Let's pray.
Father, how we thank you for that great intercession of our Lord Jesus who stepped into the valley of the shadow of death where not just the shadow of death, but death itself took his soul. And we ask you, Father, help us, save us, forgive us of our sins for Jesus' sake who died for us and rose again from the dead that all who would put their trust in him could have everlasting life and hope. And we pray, Father, that on this day as we remember just these few short years of faithfulness that you have made to this small congregation. We want to remember the thousands and thousands of generations to whom you have been faithful from the time of our great forebears, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the time of our blessed Savior, Jesus. You have been a faithful and true God, and you will come again to judge the living and the dead and your kingdom will have no end. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen.